0: Is the only one that we Jesus has
1: welcome to the american writers 100 pages at a time podcast in each episode of this podcast i look at the works of great american writers using the library of america as my source material by looking at only 100 pages in each episode my intention is to go systematically and rigorously through these works of american literature in this episode i'm going to be continuing my look at james fenimore cooper's novel the Deerslayer*, which was published in 1841 and was the last of the Leatherstocking Tales that Fen- that Cooper published, but it was actually the first chronologically in the life of the frontier hero Nathaniel Bumpo, who is the titular Leatherstocking of, of the Leatherstocking Tales. So this novel qualifies as a prequel of sorts, where we learn where he got his name Hawkeye, uh, we learn about his early, first major adventure, his first warpath, and we learn about his early relationships with Chingachgook, one of the heroic figures of the second Leatherstocking tale, the last of the Mohicans. In the first two parts of my review of the Deerslayer, I covered the deep moral differences between some of our major characters, particularly between Deerslayer and Hurry Harry. This is a novel of contrast. We have contrast between Deerslayer and Hurry Harry and Thomas Hutter. We have the contrast between Judith Hutter and her sister, um, Hetty Hutter. And then we have the deep contrast between whites and Indians on the frontier, and even between different Indian groups, such as between the the Hurons, who are the antagonists in this novel, and the Delaware, who raised Deerslayer and whom Chittagachkuk is a chief of now. So up to this point, our hero Deerslayer and his companion, Hurry Harry meet the Hutter family on Glimmerglass, a lake in upstate New York, uh, near present-day Cooperstown. But they're under threat by Hurons, the, the Mingos, to use the pejorative term used throughout the novel. After Thomas Hutter, a rumored pirate, and Hurry Harry are captured after going off on an expedition to try to take scalps, the Deerslayer returns back to find Hutter's children and protect them. But before this, Deerslayer makes his first kill of a human being kind of going on his first war path. Hetty Hutter goes to the Hurons to plead for a father's life using a naive religious argument and then is scolded by the Huron chief. Then Deerslayer and his companion Chingachgook uh, well Chingachgook arrives uh, to meet Deerslayer he was always intending to, to meet them there And he's there to find his betrothed, who's also captured by the Hurons. So there's three people to to rescue at this point. Seeking a, a way to ransom them, they search the belongings of Thomas Hutter, especially a chest filled with possible pirate treasure. What they find in there is some very expensive clothing, both men's and women's clothing, and two guns. And that is where Chapter 12 ends. And I'm going to pick up with Chapter 13, in this episode. So chapter 13, it basically picks up mid-scene, right where the last chapter ended. They're going through this wood box of of hudders. Now this was a wood box that he was very careful that the girls didn't see and witness. For instance, he didn't didn't mind if Hetty saw it because Hetty was so literal and she always described as simple-minded in this novel. But Judith, he wanted to protect from looking inside the chest, which apparently has a lot of valuables because he is rumored to have been a pirate in his previous life. They're going through this box and they contain all these treasures. They're hoping to find something they can use to ransom the captives. So that as the last chapter ended, they found this pair of old pistols. The two men notice that they have been neglected, but being Frontiers men, they have to take the opportunity to, to see who can shoot more accurately. So they, ha- they, they kind of stop in the middle of this very dramatic, almost ritual of going through this, this chest to have a shooting contest. But the one deerslayer uses misfires and is damaged. And the reason why is because Hutter had neglected the use of these precious artifacts. And there's a bit of a scolding going on here about the misuse and the waste of, of a gun, uh, which is so precious in these frontier settings. They also find some sailing equipment. I think it's like a sextant or, or something like that. Uh, again, Hutter was rumored to be a pirate, and this is more evidence that he once at least had a maritime past. Finally, uh, they find some chest pieces. I think it's in a pouch. And they don't go all the way through the chest. They stop at this point, so there's more stuff in this. It's it's one of those big kind of end, end bed kind of chests that you might still have yeah, in your house, so it's quite big. But they only go through the, kind of the top stuff, and they find this... Um, these chess pieces. Now, it's a really bizarre scene and very interesting. I guess because Deerslayer never saw chess pieces before, because he almost immediately gets really panicking and worried about like the religious upbringing of the Hutter girls, and he starts to think that Hutter is a pagan. He says, so it's almost like if you ever had this experience where, you know, your Christian friend finds out you never learned about Jesus and is, is like amazed that how can you not know about Jesus because he or she was completely raised in a Christian environment and just assumed everyone nearby was as well. He says, Judith, did your parents ever talk to you of religion? And she replies, my mother did often, my father never. I thought it made my mother sorrowful to speak of our prayers and duties, but my father never opened his mouth on such matters before or since her death. I can't, I can, that I can believe, that I can believe. He has no God, no God as it becomes a man of white skin to worship or even a red skin them things are idols and judas says are you th- and you think dear slayer that these ivory toys are my father's gods i have heard of idols i know what they are And anyway, so they, they go on in the conversation for a little bit, but it seems he doesn't even know what chess pieces are, so he thinks these pieces are are, are actually little idols. Um, but one of them, are a whole set of I think they're the rooks, are elephants, which is kind of interesting because he never would have, have, have seen it, right, an elephant. And they amazes the Indians, too. Now, maybe he'd seen them described in books or something, but Deerslayer doesn't really read, and that's revealed, I think, later in the novel that... He doesn't. He can't even really read the Bible, and he just kind of gets the Bible through bits and pieces and through stories and things. So, it's it is you know what would be the situation of of seeing a, 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 like a carving of an elephant when you never even have a clear idea of what an elephant is, maybe just seen descriptions. It's, it, we, it's kind of the experience we don't have anymore. Maybe children, but but anyways, he he finally calms down and. and, and you know, Judith insists her father's a Christian, and she talks him into accepting this. Deerslayer says he really cannot help someone who's denied the faith of his fathers. He, she says, he must be adored under some name or other, and not creatures of brass or ivory. It matters not whether the father is is all of all is called a god or manitou or deity or great spirit he is nonetheless our common maker and master nor does he count for much whether the souls of the just go to paradise or happy hunting grounds since he may send each his own way as suits his own pleasure and wisdom but it curdles my blood when i find human mortals so bound up in the darkness and conceit as to fashion the earth or wood or bones things made by their own hands into motionless senseless effigies and then fall down before them and worship them as a deity so it's, it's a really long speech he gives about why you shouldn't make idols. But within this, package, within that speech is this this multiculturalism again that we've seen Deerslayer Slayer express before. Right? That when he, when the Indian is dying, the one he shot is dying, and he's c- kind of caring for him in his last moments, he makes the same kind of point that you will go to happy hunting grounds and I will, I will, you know, I'll go to heaven or whatever. So he has this, I don't know if it's kind of all paths leading to the same place theory, but he also seems to understand that there's different religious paths for different people and different cultures and different races. But he does draw the line at idolatry. Now this Happy Hunting Grounds thing, I looked it up and, and from what I could find just like a Wikipedia search is that this was like a Plains Indians thing and I don't know if it was something the Huron embraced. I I don't have that memory in any of my studies of the Huron, and this is the first I've I've seen it. So I don't know, he might be kind of projecting something else onto these Huron. But anyways. So there's a song aside on these religious questions, and then they come back to business, which is the ransom. And they finally agree to use these ivory pieces as ransom. Deer Slayer thinks... The like I think it's two of the ivory elephants, sh- which are the rooks, should be enough to purchase the freedom of of the men. But there's a problem that's going to keep up with this ransom issue, and it, it's going to come up several times in the novel, including at the very end. Um, and that is this the whole issue of ransom and the situation that these characters are in. The problem with ransom simply is why would the would the Huron trade? for the lives of these people when they basically deem this property already theirs because they can seize it at any time, right? Or that eventually they'll be able to seize it. Or eventually the Whites and Chingachgook will be forced to flee and therefore leave this property behind. So why would they ever accept a ransom? And this is something that Deerslayer Slayer seems to be aware of, but at this time he still thinks that maybe he can talk them into it. But later in the novel he says straight up, like they already think this property is their own, so there's there's no reason to even try a ransom. But just in time to discuss ransom, an Indian arrives to parley with them, and he's actually kind of escorting Hetty back because Hetty went to try to talk them out of, of, uh, or try to talk him into letting her father and Hurry Harry go. Uh, She fails because she basically can't outwit um, the Indian chief, Rivenoak, who is... The Huron chief, chief I should say, Rivenoak, who's be able, be able to talk back to her in terms of Christianity and civilization and the impact of Christianity on these these Indians. But the look of the Indian who returns Hedy, his poor craft, suggests that the Huron right now lack the basically the capacity to invade the fort right now. They really can't get the the, the men there to do a formal upright attack. So this seems to give Deerslayer the feeling that he has negoc- advantage in the negotiations. Now meanwhile Hetty and Chingachgook discuss hist. Hist is the betrothed of Chingachgook and Hetty met her when she went to the Huron camp. and she's Hetty already feels very close to hist and, and feels a duty to her. So she makes Chingachgook promise to be good to, to hist. And that's the end of chapter 14. Right, chapter fourteen. So as this chapter opens, Chingachgook puts on clothing of a of an Indian again, and this is kind of a theme. Clothing's a, a big theme, especially in this part of the novel, because Deerslayer asked Chingachgook to put on the clothing of of a white man when they're going to, um, I guess, meet with the Indians, and he, you know, he wanted to put on that that image. And he resists. He doesn't want to do that, but as soon as he can, he puts back the clothes of an Indian. And he does this when hist is mentioned and, and he learns about hist. So I think hist has some role. In fact, there's a conversation about hist at this part of the novel. So I think there's some association with him putting on his his kind of indigenous clothing, along with learning about the the fate of, of his betrothed. And then there's other aspects of clothing like Hetty has very simple kind of homespun clothing while Judith has fine clothing and is very fashionable. There's clothing that is talked about being used for a ransom and there's a the whole discussion about why would Indians want kind of the women's clothing of, of Europeans and, and white Americans. That they would, it's kind of out of place for them and Deerslayer thinks, well sometimes they like to dress up or whatever. So there's there's a lot of interesting things to just talk about here in terms of fashion and culture. and. And what the meaning of clothing and, and and what people wear is. In fact, the novels are called the Leatherstocking Tales, which is identifying our hero. That's when he's first introduced in the Pioneers, in the first of these novels that was written. He's called Leatherstocking, you know, being associated with the clothing he wears. Anyways, he puts his both his clothes back, his regular clothes back on. He wants to meet Hist again, and he wants to do it properly dressed. And he offers himself to make the parley. He's going to be the one who goes to the Huron camp to to negotiate because then he thinks he can see Hist. Now Deerslayer ponders at this point on the love he has for Hist. He says, this must be what they call love. I've heard I heard say that it sometimes upsets reason altogether, leaving a young man as helpless as to calculation and caution as a brute beast to think that the Sarpent should be so lost to reason and cunning and wisdom. We must certainly manage to get Hist off and have a married as soon as we can get back to the tribe or this war will be of little more use to the chief than a hunt, a little uncommon, extraordinary. Yes, yes, he'll never be the man he was till this matter is off his mind. Essentially, uh, we're reminded that Chinchgotskook is in love with, with Hist and that this is a major quest of his, and this is why he's here in the first place. So before going out of the negotiations, they discuss other plans, like what's the long-term strategy here? Even if we get them back, can we stay here? Is this place defensible? Now, one plan is essentially to escape the region while banding the castle using the Ark, which is this big river boat or lake boat that they have. They think they can maybe escape, take what they can and, and leave. Another plan, though, is to hold up in the castle as long as possible and kind of in, in bunker down and, and try to defend it. After these discussions... Well, there is a nearby garrison, by the way, so there is hope that if they kind of can hold out long enough, maybe they can get word to the garrison and they'll come and chase off the, the Huron. So while these discussions are going on, a raft arrives with the emissaries of the Huron ready to discuss and exchange. And on this raft is Rivenoak, none other than Rivenoak, the chief. So it's kind of a high-ranking, the highest-ranking of, of the Huron. To improve his bargaining stance, Deerslayer identifies himself not as Deerslayer or as Natty Bumpo for that matter, but as Hawkeye. And then he tells the story about the Huron he killed earlier. And says, he named me Hawkeye, you know, because I'm such a good shot or whatever. So this is an attempt to try to raise his own rank uh, at the point during the negotiations. So he introduces these, these, these chess pieces which have these carved elephants on them. And it's a, I, again I just think it's so fascinating this this foreign creature that neither of these people would have seen before. Now, even Cooper is kind of interested in this because he goes in this aside about the future upstate New York carnivals and circuses that he must have seen by the 1740s. There would have been these these kind of circuses. And he goes in this aside, he says, Little did either of them imagine at one time that long ere a century elapsed, the progress of civilization would bring even much more extraordinary and rare animals into that region as curiosities to be gazed at by the curious, and that the particular beast about which the disputants contended would be seen laving its side and swimming in the very sheet of water on which they they had met. So I, I think he's talking about Traveling circuses and carnivals which which would have had elephants by that point. I, I don't know exactly when the When the, these these circuses began, but I think it was like the 1830s 1840s that you started to have these and and one of their Attractions were these foreign exotic animals from from other parts of the world But at this point it you know it might as well be an alien to to some of these characters, you know I don't know it cuz Bumpo. Deerslayer thought that this was an idol at first. He didn't see it right away as an elephant or as a toy. But, anyways, this negotiation goes on for a while, and it's finally decided that four elephants will be the ransom for the two men, right? And there's a back and forth in negotiation, like, well, he's old, you know. I think Deerslayer says, well, the one guy's old, and he replies, well, he's really experienced and he has a lot of skills, right? So they kind of do this negotiation, and finally they settle on the price of two elephants for, for each man. They arrive soon with the two men and release them. So before long, uh, the whole group is reunited. And we're again reminded of this distinction between how honorable Deerslayer is and how dishonorable and cunning and tricksy Hurry Harry is. Um, This was an issue brought up earlier where Hurry Harry wanted to basically kill a bunch of women and children for their scalps and get the bounty, and Deerslayer refused to do it. And part of the reason is he says this is like the Indian way, this is the Huron way, this is an Armai way. This isn't the white man's way, and so again, by having Hurry be dishonorable at this moment, he's in a sense almost de-whitening him, um, associating his values with those of the Huron, who are always described in this novel as Mingos, as as tricks, as you know, just dis, as dishonorable themselves, as always ready to go on tricks or circumventions is what Deerslayer always calls them. Basically, these tricks. So what Hurry Harry does is basically as soon as he's free, he shoots at at the the Indians who are going back to their their camp. Doesn't kill one, but this is basically what starts an outright war between the two parties. So there's really these two factions in the team. One is corruption and to take advantage and to do what you can to survive and to get ahead. And the other is this honorable approach that you see reflected in Chinchkotkuk and... And Deerslayer, although their honors are different, because Chingachgook is, is an Indian. So he's going to do more Indian-type things. Uh, Deerslayer, although raised by Indians, still holds on to this, this whiteness, and believing he has a different mor- morality he must follow. Which is something that Hutter and Hurry completely reject on the frontier. They're like, you know, we're here, it's life and death for us too, so why should we follow these you know, stupid moralities? Okay, chapter 15. An important point to remember at this at this point in the story is that the entire wood chest has not been explored. They just kind of looked at the top. There was clothing, there was a couple guns, and then these chest pieces and some sailors' equipment. There's a whole lot more in the chest. That's there. Now Judith tells the story of when Judith tells the story of how they ransomed the men, it's is an important point made, or tells the men how they were ransomed. It's an important point that the entire chest wasn't searched. And in fact, it's something that Hutter is a bit worried about when he hears, you went through the chest? He's glad to be ransomed, of course, and he he doesn't really care that much about these ivory pieces, but he cares that the chest was was searched. So there's something important in the chest that is not yet revealed. And that's going to be our Chekhov's gun for much of the rest of the novel, at least until the last parts. They discuss whether the deal they went into made peace between the, the the Indians and the people of the castle, but Deer you know, with the shooting of the Indians as they were going away, it's probably not likely. Deerslayer does in fact find some sticks with blood on them, which is left by the Indians, which was a sign of war. So they came back and drew dropped these bloody sticks, which is basically the declaration of war. This may have been, or probably was, in retaliation for Hurry's betrayal. Or it may have been just because the Huron always wanted to seize them again and take possession of the castle and all the possessions, and that the the negotiation was just kind of a part of a game, right? And there are kind of gameish aspects to warfare. We see a lot in this this novel, like the whole torture thing, uh, which comes in the last. I'll do it in the last episode, so it's right at the end of the novel. Has a bit of a game aspect to it, right? So, but anyway, it is strongly suggested by Deerslayer that it was Hurry Harry who caused the breakdown in the negotiations. Where is it? Um, He says, Yes, this is an Indian declaration of war, sure enough, and it's proof of how little you're suited to be on the path you've traveled, Harry March, that it has got me here, and you never left the wiser as to means. The savages may have left a scalp on your head, but they have taken off the ears, else you would have heard the stirring on the waters made by the lad as he come off again on his two logs. All right, sort of blaming him. As as does the reader, most likely. Now, Hurry is furious at this, and he wants to kill the messenger, but Hetty stops him. And this is common there's a couple times where the women kind of stand up for morality against the most brutal acts of of the men it's sometimes hissed and sometimes Hetty are the ones most likely to do this now as if they don't learn any lessons from anything hutter and hurry decide to set out again on another expedition the same type of expedition that got them captured in the first place to take scalps from the indians jingatuk wants to go along with them and then deerslayer lectures him about morality and and says okay I understand you want to get your feet wet, wet in war this is your first war path and and you want to go along with them and you want to re- rescue hist but do you want your first kills to be like the murder of screaming women and children and so Deerslayer sort of begins to lecture him on on his moral choices at, at this and this is the first sign that we get by Deerslayer that that not all morality is subjective i I do think that broadly throughout the novel, Deer Slayer holds on to this idea that there's kind of separate moral codes for the Indians and the whites. And this is why he's, he's not fully not racist. I mean, certainly, uh, the most straightforward way, Hurry Harry is the real racist character here, but Deer Slayer does racialize these encounters a lot. And, but here he kind of says that there is sort of a universal morality. He says, still, Sarpent, Always pronounces it serpent with an A, S-A-R-P-N-T. Chingachgook meaning big serpent or whatever. It's still serpent. You can be merciful. Don't begin your career with the wails of women and the cries of children. Bear yourself so that Hist will smile and not weep when she meets you. Go then, and the Manitou preserve you. So, anyways, something to think about. And then they go off, leaving Deerslayer with the with the young women. Now, nothing comes with this expedition, however. They, they head out, and then they find the Huron had left their site, and so they come back empty-handed. Deerslayer discusses several topics with Judith, including nature. Um, and it's something that comes up quite a lot, Is because Judith eventually wants to marry Deerslayer. She basically, we'll see in the next episode, she straight up asks him to marry her and to protect her. But Deerslayer often talks about how his first love is, is nature in the wilderness, He says, um, no, no, give me a strong place in the wilderness, which is the trees and the churches too, which are arbors raised by the hand of nature. And throughout this whole section, he compares nature and the wild and the trees to temples. It's almost a religious experience for him. They call them the temples of the Lord, but Judith, the whole earth is the temple of the Lord. To such to have the right minds. Neither forts nor churches make people happier of themselves. Moreover, it's all contradiction in the settlements, while it's all concorded concord in the wood, woods, forts and churches almost all go, go together. But yet they're downright contradictions. Churches bring peace and forts the war. Um, and this this is going to come up later during the marriage proposal, when Deerslayer again kind of chooses. The frontier. He, he rejects the civilization. And that's actually a theme throughout the Leverth Stocking Tales because this character, Deerslayer is constantly going farther west. The first two novels are set in upstate New York. Third novel also around the same place. But in the fourth, no, the, the third novel, Pathfinder, is set like in the Great Lakes. Um, he's back in this area in the fourth volume. But in the fifth novel, he's out in the prairie. Right, He's, he's even farther west. So he's always kind of looking for a new frontier. Um, okay chapter 16 This chapter is about the rescue f- attempt of Hist So they got everyone except Hist So Hist is the one they want to get back Judith is bothered that Deerslayer is attempting to risk his life to save Hist whom he doesn't love And she doesn't want him to risk his life and to die And leave her, aban- abandon her So he's, she basically says don't do it But he responds that the purpose of saving her is friendship And his friendship with Chinchigouchkuk And he has a, a loyalty and an oath to his friend, but this lack of love towards his is contrasted with Deerslayer's real love of the nature and wilderness again, and just like in the previous chapter, nature is associated with God. Quote, he loved the woods for their freshness, their sublime solitudes, their vastness, and their impress that they everywhere bore of the divine hand of their creator. He rarely moved through them without pausing to dwell on some peculiar beauty that gave him pleasure, though seldom attempting to investigate the causes, and never did a day pass without his communion in spirit, and this too without the aid of forms or languages, with the infinite source of all he saw, felt, and beheld. Thus constituted in a moral sense, and the steadiness that no danger could appeal or any crisis disturb, it is not surprising that the hunter felt a pleasure at looking on the scene he now beheld that momentarily caused him to forget the object of his visit. This will more fully appreciate when we describe it. And then there's a long description of of the scene, which is something Cooper is very good at and likes doing a lot. That's why these novels are so long, actually. So they eventually find the place where the Mingos are keeping Hist, and she's being watched by a woman. They draw out Hist and the Huron woman using... I think they make some sounds or something. And then they basically have an opportunity here to kill this woman and rescue Hist. But Deerslayer insists on letting this woman live. He seizes her, but she screams. And although Chingachkuk and Hist get away, Deerslayer is forced to flee as some mingo, mingo warriors attack. Now we see how violent Deerslayer can be towards his enemies, even as he holds to certain moral laws about the limits of warfare. Right? He killed a man already, but he killed a man who was a direct threat to him, you know, aiming a rifle at him. He does not willing to murder this woman in cold blood. Instead, he just kind of does grab her throat and and squeeze it uh, pretty violently. But he's finally forced to to flee, uh, to run away because the Huron warriors are coming at them. And this takes us into chapter seventeen. So this is basically takes up right after the rescue of Hist Deerslayer is captured in the opening pages of this chapter by the Hurons. His arrival then is. To the huron camp is taken with great announcement and celebration because he is seen as the great enemy of the huron at this point in the story the others are not taken so seriously as a real threat but he is he's, he's already been elevated from deer slayer to hawkeye in their mind he's seen as having skills he's seen as honorable he has a reputation as a great hunter and a warrior and because he doesn't come to take scalps but he either he came to protect his friends and to save a woman he's honored and he's he's more respected so he's captured and you know the treatment of prisoners is interesting they have relative freedom of movement it's it's more based on, on honor um, he would be bound up from time to time But he also gets a lot of freedom of mobility Within the camp itself And a lot of what they do at this point is, is kind of ridicule you and berate him And a couple characters, a couple Hurons Come up and berate him One is named She-Bear I think she's like connected to the man He killed before And she kind of yells at him And, and calls him names and You're skunk of the pale faces You're not even a woman Your friends, the Delawares, are only women And you are their sheep your own people will not own you, and no tribe of red men will have you in their wigwams. You skulk around, petticoated warriors. You slay our brave friend who has left us. No, his great soul scorned to fight you, and you left his body rather than have the shame of slaying you. So this is, again, it's kind of, you get the sense it's almost like a game, and it's trying to get a reaction out of him. Um, It's, it's all really fascinating to me, what it means. I, I wish I knew more about, these cultures and how Cooper saw these cultures and how much of this is real because it's it's a very interesting way of of, of working out these conflicts through these kind of uh, basically yelling at them rather than doing things and later on there's going to have the torture scene which also is going to take on the character of kind of a game of trying to see who's you know who's the most manly. So he's also berated by Catamont, a man, he because he wanted to marry Hist, and so he's upset about that and. He helped, you know, Deerslayer helped his get away, so he's cheesed off about that. But despite this, he's mostly talked to with respect, and this is following the lead of the chief, Rivenoak, who greatly respects Deerslayer. There's an important discussion here on justice and the wrong he has done, though. So Catamon says this, he says, From here to the Delaware villages... Hawkeye has stolen my wife. He must bring her back, or his scalp will hang on my pole and dry in my wigwam. And I think it's it's, it's Rivernock responds, Hawkeye has stolen nothing, Huron. He doesn't come as a thieving breed, nor has he thieving gifts. Your wife, as you called Watawa, will never be the wife of any redskin or of the Canada's. Her mind is in the cabin of a Delaware, and her body is going to find it. The catamount is active, I know, but its legs cannot keep peace with... Um, with the woman's wishes, actually, that that's that's Hawkeye speaking, but he talks about himself in the in the in the third person, and then he replies, "The serpent of the Delawares, Chingachgook, is a dog. He is a poor uh, bullpout. It keeps in the water. He's afraid to stand on the hard earth like a brave Indian." Well, well, Huron, that's pretty impudent, considering it's not an hour since the serpent stood within a hundred feet of you and would have tried the toughness of your skin with a rifle bullet when I pointed you out to him. Hadn't I laid the weight of a little judgment on his hand? You may take the t- tiresome gals in the settlement with your catamount wine, but the ears of a man can tell the truth from untruth. And then he replies, Hiss can laugh at him. He sees he is lame and a poor hunter and he has never been on a war path. She, she will take a man for her husband and not a fish. And it goes back and forth this way. Um, again, it's... It's all very playful, and it's it's trying to one up each other with insults. It's almost like the game of the dozens that they're playing with each other. So now Hetty arrives, and it, you know Hetty did this before. She came trying to talk the Indians out of out of out to to let let the men go, and now she does it again, hoping to talk the heroes out of taking this captive. She plans to ransom him. She Judith is back with the canoes and hoping to negotiate a ransom. Deerslayer figures out that that they will be captured this time. That they're, they're not going to let these women go. The Huron are too tre- treacherous, and this and this woman Hetty is way too reckless. And Deerslayer also tells her basically that he's going to be likely be tortured before this. He's let go. So chapter eighteen. Um, Hetty returns to the canoe with bad news that that she can't ransom deerslayer judith and hetty discuss the situation and they even have these weird asides they're there for quite a while it seems Um, but they have these asides about gender relations and there's an explanation about why deerslayer can't read and it's something hetty's bothered by and judith is also bothered by and they're they, they talk about how it's the duty of the mother to train Boys in religion and in education And and, and give them reading abilities so That's really the mother's job And I'm reminded here of the concept of Republican motherhood Obviously this novel is set in the 1740s Before the American Revolution And before the concept of Republican motherhood Which actually is invented by historians It wasn't a historical term But the idea of Republican motherhood Is that the role of women in the republic Because they're not going to be voting citizens full Full-blown voting They're not going to have they're not going to be active in the public sphere this way, but they still have this role of uh, like educating and training male citizens, right? Boys into good citizens. And part of that is religion. Part of that is in civics. And part of that is in, you know, how to read and write and all that. So there's a bit of an anachronism here, perhaps. Now, I don't know if in 1740s, if, you know, how much of, you know, what was seen as, you know, are they accurately describing what was seen as the role of women? In colonial America, probably to a degree, but this idea of that it's this mother's burden to educate the children is really something that reminds me of Republican motherhood. Now, Hedy is terrified at this, you know, during this conversation that Deerslayer is going to be tortured by the Mingos. So now it seems that the Huron have sent a guard to watch Hetty, but he's actually using <laughs> this mission as basically an excuse to meet a Huron woman and have a little tryst, it seems. But his main job is to kind of make sure the white women don't get away. Now while this is all going on, there's a shot rings out and the woman that went to meet this guard or this this scout is killed. It's dark and the white women really don't know fully what's going on. They assume the shot came from the castle or came from the white men from the Ark or the castle. So the women quickly try to get back to the protection of the castle because they're they're afraid stuff is going to go down. Now, during, though, the conversation between Judith and Hetty, we see a very simple morality from the mouth of Hetty and a much more complex realism from Judith. Knowing Deerslayer's simplicity, or knowing more about it, in the sense that he can't read, yet Deerslayer has all these skills, we can see where Cooper places his faith. It's it's almost better to have a simple morality and a simple and straight-up moral code then embrace the circumventions of people like the Huron or even Judith in a way Judith is I don't want to say immoral but she's a bit tricksy and and later on when she tries to marry Deerslayer, slayer she tries to trick him she tries to trick him into marriage and she actually does a pretty good job of doing that so she's a little bit a little more sneaky with her words because she's sophisticated enough Hedy is not smart enough to be that tricksy with words and it seems Cooper is on the side of more straight-up, clear morality, or a moral code. Now, you know, in a way, a lot happens, but we could also say maybe not that much happens in this this section of the novel. Basically, in these hundred pages, these six chapters, all that really happens is the captivities are traded. Deerslayer ends up in the position where Hist, Hurry, and Hutter were. So basically, he trades himself for Hist, Hurry, and Hutter, who now get their freedom. Which, of course, is a, is a very moral act. Now, he wanted to get away. It's not that he wanted to be captured. He didn't, like, offer himself. But in all intents and purposes, he's traded for these three. Um, from the Huron point of view, it's probably a good trade. Because they would certainly see Deerslayer as a more valuable than Hurry and Hutter. Now, Hist is valued because she's going to be the wife of one of them. But, you know, I'm not sure if it was a fully fair trade. But it seems they're not too upset about the way things ended up. They also get those four ivory elephants. We have in this section some really nice scenes of negotiation, of flight, of danger. And we have this daring kind of nighttime escape and this uh, kind of mystery of who shot this woman at the end in in Chapter 18, which makes it kind of a memorable uh, chapter. We're reminded of the peril that the characters are in and the foreshadowing of the violence of torture, which is going to be the climax of the novel, is also introduced. The love interests of our major characters are also cultivated in these chapters as Chingachgook and Hist find each other. Judith loses the man she loves or the man that loves her, Hurry Harry, Harry, but she is... uh, And then he comes back, right? So she loses him at the beginning, but he comes back, but then she loses the man she comes to love, Deerslayer, and is reunited with with the one she begins to despair so despise so the trading for judith's point of view is bad and she's desperate to get deer slayer back at the end so you really feel that coming through the pages too uh all in all i'm coming to to like cooper i was a bit hesitant to jump into reading james fenmore cooper largely because of you know what twain said about him and my memory of him reading him in high school i think it was or junior high uh, really these long slow descriptions you know but I'm finding a lot to like in in this novel, now that I'm kind of reading it here. I think this is the first time I read it. I, I may have read selections of The Deer Slayer in, in high school, but this is the first time I've ever read the full novel. So my hesitation was is probably a little, was a little misguided. I think there's a lot to like in these novels. We got some wonderful themes here. Certainly, we're, we're reintroduced to a theme brought up last time, which is the materialism of the Indians. Their desire for material goods and and how they're willing to trade life for these objects and then the importance of clothing and outward uh, imagery for people like Chingachgook and the clothing in fact the importance of clothing altogether is is an interesting part of of this novel we have torture being foreshadowed it's not fully described yet but more broadly the idea of these these this capturing and torturing and interrogating it all has a an almost not fully comic because it's it's deadly serious, but it's it's a bit playful, and especially when you see Deerslayer and Catamount talking back to each other and and accusing each other of not being a full man, and you know, and then he starts insulting Deerslayer's friend, and he has to rise up and defend him. It's like a game of the dozens almost. Now you see. Now religion is a really big theme in these chapters as well. Uh, Deerslayer has a very deep morality a deep moral code he he does is a christian but his christianity is very much shaped by life on the frontier life uh, with nature and he sees god living in nature and this is one reason he doesn't see a huge difference between his own morality and that of the people who worship the manitude or the great spirit or all this he's unable to read the bible for instance but he does have a bit of a, a kind of naturalist religion that fills in that space He's got a bit of naivety towards religious aspects in the sense that he saw, thought these things were idols. And he he's basically thinks any kind of depiction of these creatures uh, must be idols. We get throughout here the, the importance of a simplicity of moral truths as opposed to the circumventions the the trick scenes and the scheming and the plotting all of that is inferior to a simple moral code and that's what's going to get deer slayer through his challenges and the characters who don't embrace a simple moral truth don't end up as as well now not everyone who's simple lives of course but uh it's still there's some honor in that we have nature's beauty versus nature's laws now this is pre-darwinian so if you followed my series on jack london You'll know I talked a lot about this kind of Darwinian, social Darwinian understanding of nature. Cooper's writing long before you have this. So nature's laws are presented more as, as God's law. Um, but there is still this kind of the law of the frontier, which uh, you know permits scalping and murder and, 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 and violence. So I'm not quite sure how to separate these two. I think they both sort of exist at the same time. And Cooper doesn't fully see the Indians as part of nature, certainly. So they're products of civilization as well. Some other writers may have wanted to see the Indians as part of nature, but Cooper doesn't do that. In fact, there's a point he makes in the preface of the novel, that that these aren't just like parts of nature. They aren't the noble savage. But we do get a a natural nature's beauty. So Cooper and Natty Bumpo really idealize nature and the wilderness, and they don't see it necessarily as this brutal struggle for survival. If that exists, it's a product of the civilizations coming in. And this is the point that Rivenoak seems to make to Hetty, and that was back in the the previous section. So you can go back and look at my comments about that. So anyways, that does it for this part three of my review of The Deer Slayer. I'm going to come back next time and and look at part four. There's actually going to be two more parts before we get to the end of this rather lengthy novel. But uh, I hope you join me and I hope you uh, 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 thanks for listening. And if you have any comments, you can leave them right here on Podbean or you can go leave a review on iTunes or you can write me at 100pagescast at gmail.com and I will uh, try to respond to your comments. So again, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back shortly with another part of, of The Deerslayer by James F- Feminore Cooper.
0: Let Christian men take heart today, the devil's rule is done. Let no man heed the devil more, for Jesus Christ has come. But hear ye all oh what angels sing, how Mary made for Jesus King, Jesus I.